Good morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. It's good to be with you. Good to see you all here. Thank you for joining us in person and also online. Uh, glad to have you joining us here. And I want to take you back in history to begin um, my time with you guys right away. I'm going to ask how many of you remember this game up here? Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I love playing this game. How many of you love playing this game as a kid? Yeah. Yeah, no. And some of you are like, I hate that game. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Memory. Oh, what a great game. I remember playing this in Barbados and Grenada growing up. And when we came back here to the States on furlough, we were missionaries in the Caribbean, for those who don't know, and come back and play Memory. I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, the reason why I like playing Memory, if you don't know, if you don't know the game, real quick, there's, you can kind of read a little bit on the side, there's 72 cards and an organizer tray that comes in the organizer, that comes in the box. And the cards get put out face down. And uh, on the back, you just see the word Memory. And then the goal is to, you know, match the, the cards. So you flip flip it over and try to remember. Every person gets to flip over two at a time, then they have to turn them back over if they don't match. You have to try to remember where they were in the right spot and all that. And I liked to play this game because I was good at it compared to my sister. And that's all that mattered because I could beat her. And that's pretty much what I wanted to do. And so then I would want to play this game with her. And I would, I would try, I would do anything to win because that's really what mattered. Playing games for me wasn't about socialization and connecting relationally, believe that or not. It was just about winning. Like, I'm going to win this game, whatever it takes. And so I began to study the back of the memory cards. Anyone ever do that? Like, it's like the pineapple has a crease on it. I just know that. So I know, like, as we sit down, like, I know that one over there has that crease on the top left. That's a pineapple. And now I, like, I keep that in my head, right? And then the rabbit, that little right-hand side is a little messed up. I know that. And I just began to cheat so that I could win at memory. Because winning is everything in many ways. And, and believe it or not, I have no idea why, but as time went on, my sister did not like to play with me very much. And that extended to um, ping pong, that extended to playing anything outside. Like anytime I would play with her, what was most important is that I won. And that was my reality. Like I'm going to win no matter what, right? Now, as I have gotten older, here's what I've come to learn, that it is harder for me to define the wins as I get older. I still want to win. It's just harder to define them. What does it actually mean to win relationally? What does it actually mean to win in my career or in your career? Because winning is very motivating, and it has been very motivating for me, and I would argue it's very motivating for all of us, that no matter how we play it, we play it to win. Even if we play like my sister who'd say, I don't want to play with you anymore, her win is, I don't have to play the game with my brother anymore. Like, we're all in it to win it. It's just that we define winning it differently. And as we get older, we realize that winning becomes more complex and more nuanced, and it's harder to actually nail down. And so then what we will do is in business as well as in personal life, we will try to define the win. If you ever heard of vision casting, strategic planning, goal setting, priorities, creating future goals, future orientation, this is our attempt to define the win, to look forward and say, this is where I'd like to go. And that makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? It really does. But here's the challenge with that. And the question is this, like underneath the winning is this reality that, that winning, I'll put it this way, winning is, and meaning are actually related. Winning and meaning are related, and the more that we win, the more fulfilled we feel. So winning and meaning have a relationship. The more that we win, the more fulfilled we feel. So if I define winning 
as making X number of dollars in my business or turning this X number of profit, I will feel like a better businessman if I do that, just the way that works. If I define winning as making the all-star team, I will define, I will find meaning and fulfillment in that. And if I define winning as starting on the team or making regional chorus or whatever I define winning, if I get there, I feel more fulfilled. And if I don't, consequently, I don't. But not all meaning and not all winning is created equal. In fact, here we go. Here's what I would say, that, that meaning can be either created or discovered, and they are two very different things. Most of the time, we create meaning and we create winning. Here's what I mean. I might create a world for me where I might sit down with, like we are with our staff right now and talk about vision planning for Grace Point Church. Where are we going? What kind of meaning, if you will? What are we pursuing? What is the win of Grace Point right now? And we've been talking and praying through this for, for weeks now. And we're trying to create, if you will, a little more clarity around vision. I don't mind doing that. But I would also argue that if there was someone else in leadership, if you were in leadership, and you had other staff working with you, that your vision of where Grace Point could go or should be would probably be different, even if it's just slightly, than mine. Meaning that we would tend to create vision and direction based on who we are. And there are good things about that and bad things. And you know the story, the story's repeated over and over again of a season of life where you create meaning of we're going to make, you know the story of someone who sits down and creates, I want to make X number of dollars as a young person. I want to make this certain amount of money. By the time they get old, they look back on their younger life and think, I missed being with my children. I wish that I would have done something differently. You know that narrative. You know that story, right? That in a season of time, they created what the win was and created meaning, but later in life, they look back and think, this meaning or creation of my meaning at that time was actually a loss. So created meaning, created winning can actually, while it sounds good and, and it's what we do, it, it can lead us into actually losing. Discovered meaning is very different. Discovered meaning is this belief that you and I were actually placed on the planet for a purpose, that there is something that we are here to connect to, if you will. That there in the Christian worldview, there is a God who knew that you would be here. And our opportunity is to discover at a deeper level the meaning of life and our meaning purpose, personally, why we are here. A discovered meaning is deeper and connects in the Christian world to a heavenly Father who has made us. Discovered meaning endures hardship. Created meaning gets rocked when things get hard. Not all meaning is created equal, not all winning is created equal, but we all pursue winning because we all pursue meaning. Now, here's where I'm going with this thing, okay? That, that early on, the writer of 1 John, John who's a follower of Jesus, was writing to young Christians and a young church, and he's wanting to write to them about what it means to, believe it or not, to win. This is exactly what he talks about. Here, young church, he says, is the win. If you call yourself a Christian, here is the win of what it means to be a Christian. And John writes these things to us, not so that we can create our own win, but so that we can, church, discover our win. Because there's a difference between created and discovered meaning and created or discovered wins. So this morning, I want you to see it, and I want to take you on that journey in 1 John chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, the Bible in the pews are gift to you, by the way. You can take it home with you if you'd like. You can find this also on the YouVersion app. But 1 John chapter 5, 
And uh, we're going to start and just go through five verses this morning. Start at verse 1. Here we go. John is writing, and, and it, I will, let me be honest with you about this section. When we turn the corner of the letter that we've been in for a number of weeks now, when we turn into chapter 5, John's thinking starts to get a little, um, a little more disconnected. It's almost like he's coming to the end of his writing, and if you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're about to hang up the phone or about to, to walk away, you add, oh, there's just one more thing I wanted to say before I went, oh, and there's just one more thing. And it's kind of like he's, it almost feels like he's kind of adding a couple things that don't quite maybe connect as well. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge to put this together logically. I'll do my best to try to help make this make sense for us this morning. So verse 1 of chapter 5, John writes it this way. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. I'm going to slow it down and kind of go verse by verse here a little bit this morning. So let me look at this with you, and I'm going to I created a chart. I hope this little chart is helpful. Part of the teacher in me wanted to do this to help us visualize it. I needed it. I'm a more visual learner this way. And so I was writing on my whiteboard again this week, trying to make sense of these relationships that John is writing about. But verse 1, he puts it this way. He says, everyone who believes, he starts this way. So on the top of my little chart here is this idea of believe. So anyone who's in this category of believing is who he's talking to. So, so everyone who believes, and the question is believes what? Not just believes anything, but specifically anyone and everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So once you have come to that space in your life where you say, you know, who is Jesus? And you answer it with, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Christ. Then what happens is, John writes, those people are born of God. And so in my little chart, if you believe, then in this arrow, you move down to being in this category of born of God. Fairly simple so far, right? Real simple, that you are now born of God. But it's a very important starting point, because the reality of this is that some of us think that if we're Christian, sometimes we think we're born into it because my parents were Christian, or my grandparents were, or it's what our family does. But John is extremely clear that being in the family of God has nothing to do with my actual physical family heritage, nor does it have to do with my morality and ethics. It has everything to do, first of all, with what do you believe? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you are in the family of God. You are born of God. And then he writes in parallel, and he says, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And so it's as if John is in this box saying, if you're born of God, you're in here and there's a heavenly father to love. And if you're in there and you're born of God, then you also are going to love the people who are in that box with you or in that family with you. And so I decided, aren't those great illustrations there, right? The people in there that in the born of God family, that if you're in there, then what People in that camp do is that they actually love other people who are also in the family. That's just what John is saying. That if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God, you're a child of his, and then if you're in there, then you love other children too. That's just the way it is. Now, sometimes there's sibling rivalry, and sometimes it's hard to know exactly how to love, which is why then John writes verse 2. He says this, this is how we know that we love the children of God. That's good to know. How do I know that I love the people next to me? By loving God. Now, this seems circular. By loving God, and then he clarifies, and carrying out 
his commands. This is getting good. All right. So, in fact, he says this is love for God, to keep his commands. Now, pause it right here. It's almost as if in his writing, John is trying to be incredibly clear to say, if you are loving, if you want to know how to love people, if you're in that family of God, what you should do is you should love God the Father. Well, how do you do that? By keeping his commands, which is great if you're a rule follower, which is great if you grew up as someone who likes to know exactly what to do. Now, this is also great if you happen to be Jewish when John is writing this and you come from a Jewish background. You're going to hear this idea of keeping commands through the lens of an Old Testament concept. You're going to hear this lens, this through the lens of, you know what, let's think about the ways that the people of Israel related to God in the Old Testament through the Abrahamic covenant, and through the covenant with Moses, and through the covenant with David. In fact, that was the nature of the relationship of the Old Testament Israel to God primarily, was through obedience and disobedience. And so this is, can be a gift, like if you enjoy order and discipline, it can almost feel like, this is cool, so you tell me, listen, you tell me, how many times do I need to do devotions, and for how long do I have to do them? Can you please tell me how long my skirt is allowed to be? or how short it's allowed to be. Can you please tell me what kind of music I'm allowed to listen to? Can you please tell me what kind of clothes that I should wear? Can you please tell me exactly what kind of spouse I should marry? Can you please tell me where I should go to school and how exactly I should run my business in an ethical way that gives honor to God? Can you please help me understand the commands of God so that I can do the commands of God? And if any of you have grown up in that environment or around that environment, you know that following commands is generally a burdensome reality, isn't it? Which is why none of you, if you're good parents, you never talk to your children that way, do you? I command you to clean your room. Like, I command you to take out the, like, we don't do that because the command and servant-master relationship by default feels incredibly, incredibly burdensome and distant. Which is why John then clarifies immediately, because in the mind of the hearers, they're hearing all these command and duty and things that I must do. And then he says at the end of verse 3, and his commands are not burdensome. So I want you to keep the commands, but this is weird. The commands aren't burdensome. Now that is strange. It's really strange, particularly if you're used to religion. But it makes a ton of sense because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus, as many of you know, has taken the old covenant language, the ways of relating to God through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through other patriarchs of the faith. And Jesus in the New Testament has said it this way. He said, a new command I give to you. A new command I give to you. Love one another. Just makes it incredibly simple. And so to which John picks up on this idea of love from Jesus and says, let me just be clear that the way that you can know that you're loving each other is not by making sure that you have devotions five days a week for 20 minutes, that you're praying for at least 10 of those minutes, and that you're making sure that you're getting through all of the Bible in five years, that you can also be sure that you're at church at least 80% of the time. The average in North America right now is about one and a half times the church attendance a year. But if you're doing better than that, then you're doing better than somebody. So that's good for you, right? You'll get more marks somewhere in somebody's book who knows where they're keeping that stuff, right? But someone's probably keeping that stuff somewhere. You can make sure that you turn the TV off when the bad stuff comes on, whatever the bad stuff is, and however you define the bad stuff, that's probably going to get you some marks somewhere, right? But see, Jesus puts it very differently. He's like, do you want to know my new command? Love one another. Love your kids. Kids, love your parents. 
kids love each other. This is it. Like, I don't want you to start filtering your life through all the burdensome commands, even of the Old Testament. I want you to begin filtering your life through the simple question of, am I acting in a loving way toward the people whom I share a family relationship with? Am I loving you? And are you loving me? And that is not burdensome at all. And it results in something very profound. And look what John writes. He says, verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Let me pause it there. Let me go back to my amazing chart up here. Here's what he says, that if you're born of God, boom, you overcome the world. Do you know what that word overcoming means? To win. Bottom line, you win. You win. That's exactly what it means. This term comes, it's a, the, the history on this word is about a legal win. It's about a physical win in a physical contest. It's about a metaphorical win that the good wins and the evil loses. Any way you want to cut it, John is telling people, you want to win, don't you? You want your life to be about finding the wins and winning. If you want to win, if you want to overcome, he's putting it this way, believe that Jesus is the Christ. In that family, we love each other. We love God. And that, that, if you will discover that, you will win. You don't need to create another kind of meaning. You don't need to, to create another way for your life to win. You need to discover that winning begins with faith in Christ. And it continues by evidencing love for our neighbor and love for one another, that this discovery of how life works in this way is indeed what it means to win. Now, John goes on in verse 4. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. He's pointing all the way back to the top of my little chart. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that wins? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, what this chart is trying to show you. Now, this statement, I want to make sure that we understand this. Everyone who is born of God, back to the beginning of verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Overcoming means winning, but I want to be sure that we understand what the world means. The world, the world, let me be incredibly clear, the world does not, not mean a political party that we're planning to win. Right? We're not going to stake our claim as Christians to a political party that is going to get in power. We're not going to stake our claim to a policy that we prefer. The, the world isn't also our version or someone else's version of immorality. The world, in this case, is that world, that worldview that is against God in any way. It's this world that says, you know what, there is hate, there is evil, there is death, there is suffering, and there's hope and life and hope in Christ. It is that those moments, and tell me if you struggle with this, we're in this hopefully soon-to-be post-COVID world where the anxiety is high. The invitation of anxiety is to stop trusting and to start worrying. The invitation of the pressure that you feel as parents to try to guard and guide your kids through this space. The pressure you feel as kids to figure out how to relate to each other is real. And the invitation is constantly to, to death, to hate, to division, to polarization of people who are opposite from you. To win by manipulating, to win by dominating, to win like I did by cheating and looking at the back of the card, to win our position 
That's the world. The world is saying, we want you to win. The way to win is to dominate and step on somebody else who you don't agree with. The way to win is to divide. The way to win is to bring death. The way to win is to give in to your anxiety and worry your way into peace, which we can never do. The world is the constant invitation for heightened anxiety, lesser calm, greater fear of death and the future chaos that could be brought. It's division, it's polarization, it's all of the stress and ugliness that we want to push away. How is it that Christians can overcome all of this that seems to come in like a slow tide that can't be stopped? To which John says, let me help you discover faith in Christ that leads to love for people will win the day, every day. What I want to speak to, what I think is so critical is the, the source of the strength that we have for every day. When we wake up and we get after the days that we get after right now, how is it that we function? Where do we come from? And I want to take you I'm just going to put it on the screen here for you. I want to take you to another way that God related to his people that talked about like the origin and power of where we start our day and from where we begin our day. Many years before John wrote this, God was dealing with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah um, had been rebellious. They had disobeyed for a long time. And in the result of that was that they were going to be punished. There was a, a nation, Assyria, that was going to come and essentially uh, conquer Israel. And in this space, here's how God wrote, spoke to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 30, he spoke to the very issue, I think, that is at stake in what John is writing about and what we are facing today and the pressure that we face in our world. Here's how Isaiah wrote it. He put it this way. He said, this is what... The sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Listen to the difference of that tone for a minute. Listen to the difference of that tone compared to the media that we consume every week. Listen to the words in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness, trust. This is where you find your strength. In repentance, in stopping to recognize God, ooh, I've been trying to go this one alone. I've been so anxious for my kids. I've been so worried about our financial future. I get so angry at people who think differently than me and cut me out of their lives. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe these people react in this way. And I function from a center of anxiety. And God writes through that, Isaiah, let me bring you back in repentance and rest is where you find salvation. And then in quietness, quietness and trust is your strength. It'd be great if Israel did this, but verse 16 of Isaiah 30 puts it this way. <laughs> but you would have none of it. You said no. Now, we'll flee on our horses, therefore, God says, yeah, you will. You're going to do what you said you're going to do. You're going to, you will flee. And then you said, we'll ride off on swift horses, therefore, God says, your pursuers will be swift. 
And this is what I do as well, and I don't know if this is what you do, but I listen to that, and I think in quietness and strength and trust is my strength. That's a great thing. Now, tomorrow morning, here's the things I got to do, right? Now, here's how I need to respond to this person. Boom. And I don't know how we're going to, but we have to figure out. And this is what the nation said. Well, that's really nice about that repentance and rest thing and quietness and trust. That's nice that you can say that, but listen— we also bred these horses there. They're ready for battle. We also have designed chariots that are actually pretty, pretty good. And if there comes a time when we have to run, like, we got it taken care of. We'll go ahead and flee. Like, we'll trust in the mechanisms that we've created. To which God says, I know you're going to do that. I know you're going to do that, but I just want you to know, you can't outrun what is coming for you. You can't run your way to peace. But here's what Isaiah says in the next verse. He says this, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And so in this picture of where the nation of Israel gets its strength, it's this picture of a nation that is invited to pause, come back again to their place of belief, to rest and repent of where their belief has failed them, where they have believed more in themselves than in their God. Because when we fail to remember our point of entry into the family of God, we fail to figure out, we fail to win, if you will. We fail to find the kind of meaning that has already been placed here for us. And God is saying, in quietness and trust, trust is your strength. And so I have a couple of questions around this for us. Number one is this. Where do I find the strength for my day? Where do you find the strength for your day? When you begin the day, when you wake up and function, you're functioning out of a base of something. You're, you're starting the day with energy to go to school, to go to work, to conquer, to win, to plan, whatever it is. And it's all amazing stuff. You've been given incredible gifts and vision. I don't want to discourage any of that. But I want to encourage a moment of revisiting the base of operations. Where do I find the strength for my day? John is saying, all who believe are born of God. Those who are born of God love people. Remember, in quietness and trust is our strength. But the return to belief, a reminder that Christ is our Savior, is a place to operate from strength, not that I am my Savior. And then let me ask this question as well. Do my relationships reflect a non-anxious presence of faith and love? So are the people who I get to interact with, do they get to see me and do I get to interact with them on the basis of faith and love? Well, how's that going to work out with COVID? How's that actually ever going to leave? Are we ever going to get out of the masking? Are we ever going to have to stop with the restrictions? How's it ever going to work racially in our country? How about immigration? That's a mess. What are we going to do with the economy and house prices and building products that are going so high? How are we going to survive that and the growing disparity between the, the rich and the poor and the educational gaps that are forming? How are we going to do that? Not to mention anything about our relationships within our family. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Our family's already split about this thing. We got to go have lunch with them today. How are we going to handle the future stress of that? And I'm thinking about dating this person who doesn't believe the same thing I do politically. How in the world are we ever going to get along? And over and over and over, the anxiety invites you, invites me 
to stop trusting that Jesus is the Christ and that love wins every day. Over and over and over again, the world, the message of death and hate, perversion and polarization and division crawls right into your life on the phones that we scroll through, on the computers that we read our news. We're invited constantly to do anything but what Isaiah writes about, to find your rest, to find your quietness and trust in the strength of God, which is why John is writing to his young church, trying to help them discover, not create their meaning, to discover that, yes, people of faith who believe that Jesus is the Christ and then who love one another have discovered the simple power of resting in their faith and acting in love. So to put it this way, Christians and God's children win through faith, by love. Every day, that's both an ultimate statement and a daily statement. Through faith, by love. Through faith, by love. How am I going to win? How am I going to win financially? How am I going to win spiritually? How am I going to win relationally? How am I going to win in business? How, how are we going to, how are we going to, how are we going to? How are we going <laughs> to? It's through faith, by love. What does that mean? Through faith by love, through faith by love. What do I believe? What do I believe? What family am I in? How can I love the people right around me well? Church, friends, I would love to have the source of your daily initiative be a restful place of confidence that God delivers and has delivered, freeing you and freeing me to be a non-anxious presence for our kids, our families of faith and love, which is not burdensome no matter what. All right, next week we're going to finish up John, and we're going to learn some things that can get in the way and derail us along this journey. I look forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be in this letter this morning to revisit and see again the power of faith and love to recenter us. I pray that you'd help us to repent of those areas in which those times, those days, maybe those seasons, we might be in them right now, where the anxiety is too much, the invitation of the world toward death and hate is too much, and we don't think we'll ever be able to overcome. I pray that you'd help us to see the power of returning to our own first story of faith and simply asking the question about love in our relationships right now. What does it mean? to love the people right around me. And so may we, may we of all things discover that winning and overcoming even what seems to be insurmountable odds is done through faith, by love, one day at a time. We love you and we thank you for the time we can share this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.